here. Welcome to our fifth and final installment of our series, Trust the Process. I know it says part four, but the first day where the first lesson was an introduction. So sorry about that. It's kind of confusing. But uh, this is our final session. We've made it all the way to that final step. So I'm excited to get into that this morning. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray first. Ask God to bless our time together. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for a good service this morning. I thank you for working in our hearts and lives. And now, Lord, as we open your word again together, as we look into these, this last section of our progressive sanctification, Lord, that you would help us to be challenged and also encouraged. Lord, that we'd walk away having uh, had profit. Lord, you say your word is profitable, so please make it profitable in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we... I finally made it to that last part and our stair step, if you will, the process of progressive sanctification. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, so you can turn in your Bibles there if you're not already. 2 Peter chapter 1, we've made it through uh, the verses and we're now moving into verse 7. And so just as a review, uh, we want to remind ourselves a little bit about where we've been. So we're just going to jump in in verse number 6. 2 Peter 1 says, add to perseverance, godliness, and we've, we've studied all of these in previous lessons. So if you missed those, I'd encourage you to go back and watch or listen to the audio and catch up on these things. Verse 7, we're adding to godliness, brotherly kindness, and adding to brotherly kindness, love. Remember that each of these different disciplines or virtues build upon the one below it. They're not, they're not separate from one another, they're, they're connected. And so as we go through our life in, in our spiritual growth, we're hopefully moving from immaturity in Christ to maturity in Christ. That's our goal. And Peter, our, he's our coach, if you will, for this process. He's encouraging us to add these things as we build and as we grow in Christ, we're continuing to look for these things. And keep in mind, uh, we never really fully grow in all of these areas 100%. There's always more work to do. Add to your faith, virtue, virtue knowledge, etc. We need to continue to work on every layer, every level needs needs our attention. And uh, we have this chart that we've been using. Again, biblicalcounselingcenter.org is the source for this. And we looked at this Early on in in our study, the foundation, which is faith, virtue, and knowledge, we looked at the hard work of self-control and perseverance, and last week we started the payoff section. This is is the result of having um, worked on these other things and allowed God to work on them in us of godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Last week we looked at the first two, godliness and brotherly kindness. This morning we're going to finish out by looking at agape love. And we could go on and on and on about agape. It is the most used word for love in Scripture, I believe, and certainly uh, the most potent word that we have for love. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Um, And I'm so thankful for you being here, and hopefully you've been enjoying and challenged by this. And um, so let's look at love together this morning. We looked at godliness. Let's review where we've been uh, quickly. Godliness last week um, says to add to perseverance godliness in verse number six. 
We define godliness as habitually responding in Christ-like character. Remember that from last week. Habitually responding as Christ would respond. Uh, and then we looked at brotherly kindness, that Philadelphia word. And we're supposed to add to our godliness brotherly kindness. And then we define brotherly kindness as acting toward others as Christ would, kindly, tenderheartedly, and forgiving. And so we, we delved into those last week, and I believe, obviously, more could be said about all of these things. We are not exhausting uh, these topics. As we look at this chart, go back to it here, we have not exhausted any of these in, in these lessons. So much more could be said and added to. But hopefully what we've done is at least given ourselves uh, a foundation to work with, uh, a foundation of knowledge and understanding so that we can understand what God has for us. But this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time, Lord willing, on the topic of love, agape love. It says in the verse, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and we're adding to brotherly kindness, love. This is the final step in the process of progressive sanctification. This is the mountaintop that we've been looking forward to. This is the highest calling. This is the transformative power. We want to be more godly, more affectionate, more loving, but have we been willing to implement the other things first in our life? Let's define love, and then we'll look, work through our study talking about love. So let's define it. We'll have a couple different definitions. I'm sure you have one maybe that you've thought of or that you work with. But right on your notes on the chart on the back of your sheet there, love is defined as serving God and others motivated by agape, the highest possible motivation for the believer. This is a very potent, powerful love. It's defined in the dictionary, uh, the uh, Greek-English dictionary, agape, Love, some synonyms, generosity, kindly concern, devotedness. We get many other synonyms. This is a definition I uh, borrowed from someone. I think I'm paraphrasing it. But it says, love is giving others what they need the most when they deserve it the least and with no expectation of anything in return. Pouring our life, our resources, our time into another's life just for the sake of agape. No other motivation. Not because we're going to receive commendation from someone, not because we're going to receive something in return back from them. In fact, many times as we express this love, there's nothing to receive in return. Some people can't return anything. Are we willing to continue to express even when they can't? I like what Wearsby said in his commentary when we have brotherly love, which we talked about last week, we love because of our likenesses to others. That's the interfaith, if you will, or that's probably the wrong word, but it is the, the faith that we have for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So we have Christ in common, right? But agape love, we love in spite of the differences we have. So even among Christians, there's going to be differences. There's going to be issues and things that come up. Are we willing to allow agape love to flood over all of those things and still continue to care for one another? Let's keep moving here. Some verses about agape love in Scripture that are important. These are not all of them, of course. 
but I think a few that help us understand some things. <clears throat> Number one, love originates with God. It doesn't start with us. This agape love is not starting in, in us. It starts with God. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his, lo- his own love, his own agape toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Jesus came and died. That's the ultimate expression of agape. We, we didn't deserve any of it. You talk about not expecting anything in return. What can we return to God that equals what he did for us? Nothing. He is self-existent anyway. He's fully complete in and of himself. He does not need anything. He doesn't require anything to be more or better than who he is. He is 100% complete. So no matter how we look at it, we can't express this any, any greater than God did. So it's originating with God. It's also produced by the Holy Spirit. It says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is agape. So where does this agape love originate? With God. And how do we experience it? Through the Holy Spirit. So he's coming and dwelling inside of us, and he produces the fruit that flows out of our lives, and other people around us get to experience it through us. And I I really believe the fruit of the Spirit is love singular and I believe all of these are self-contained within that love because you can't have joy without love peace without love long suffering without love you can't have any of those things without love agape is the highest level yeah that's a good point John pointed out the rainbow different colors but one one thing so love uh, originates with God it's produced by the Holy Spirit thirdly love is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. It's the ultimate fulfillment. Uh, Romans 13, 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It completes, it helps us obey what God has asked us to do. Number four, love is ultimately expressed to others by self-sacrifice. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Of course, Jesus, in this passage, was in the upper room. He was about to go do that very thing for everyone, for the sins of the whole world. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for others. Agape love is ultimately expressed to others by self-sacrifice. Now, sometimes, you know, I should say, most of us, or all of us probably, are not going to be asked to die, literally die for someone else. Um, but what are we asked to sacrifice for others? We're going to be asked to sacrifice many things. We're going to be asked to sacrifice our time because loving people takes time. It takes time out of your busy schedule and out of my busy schedule to have conversations, to reach out, to connect with people. It's going to take your time away from some other things that you might want to do. It's probably going to cost you something. No, I'll I'll take that back. It's definitely going to cost you something. It might cost you resources like money. It might might cost you 
other, other resources that, that you have, your, your physical things that you have. Loving others is going to, to cost us something. It's going to be expressed by this self-sacrificial attitude that says, you matter more than me, so I'm willing to give up my time, my attention, my own agenda, my own plans that I had, I'm going to put all that on hold and throw it aside because you're more important than my plans. You're more important because I'm going to choose to express agape love to you because you matter more. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Number five, love is ultimately expressed also to God. That first number four was to others. It's ultimately expressed to God by obedience. We talked about, if you've ever read the five love languages book, right? Everyone has these different uh, ways that they interpret your actions. Some people enjoy gifts. Some people enjoy quality time, and there's others. God also has a love language, how he interprets our love. Now, he sees our heart, so he has that advantage. But his love language is obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, If you agape me, then you're going to keep my commandments. So what happens when we don't keep the commandments? We stop loving Christ in that that moment. And so those are some, there's many others, but I just wanted to go through that list. These are all examples of love in Scripture. Let's move on to the the next step here. So we've talked about, we've defined it, we've looked at it in Scripture. Let's compare love. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians for this. And the verses will be up here, but I just want you to consider these things. How Paul, he's dealing with Corinth. The pastor just talked about this for a couple weeks. And as he's getting ready to really get into 2 Corinthians, he goes back to 1 Corinthians and reminds us where that church has been and where they're going and where, they're, where they are now. And so Paul is dealing with these things. And right in the middle of the letter, he has this great treatise on love, 1 Corinthians 13. But he doesn't start talking about love in chapter 13. He has been laying the groundwork before that. So he compares agape love to many things. And agape love always comes out on top. It's always the most important. First of all, 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge or love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than knowledge. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The word edify there, that means builds up. What's he saying? He's saying, I can have all this knowledge, but if I'm, if I'm not having an outlet, if I'm not able to express it to people, and I just build up all this private knowledge to myself, it's going to puff me up. It's going to give me a, a pride complex. Because I'm, I'm learning all these things, but I'm not sharing them with anyone. I'm not allowing them to invest in my own life and invest in others' lives. There's no transformative power. It's just simply facts. And I can spout off all these facts, maybe even memorize verses, but they're not being applied into, into my life. Then I'm just uh, another example of pride. It says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love takes the knowledge and applies it into others' lives. So love is greater than, than knowledge. Love is also greater than tongues. Now we get into 1 Corinthians 13. 
Verse 1 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I can maybe be so eloquent in my voice, but if I have been hurtful to others and discouraging them and, and putting people down, and then I come up in front of people and have eloquence and be able to, he says, speak in the multiple languages and even angelic tongues, but I haven't been loving people. He says, I have become this annoying sound. Like, people cringe because if I haven't been showing love, people know that. And so I can say the most eloquent words in the most eloquent languages, but if I haven't been loving others, they're going to know that, and it's, it's just going to be like nails on the chalkboard. It's just going to make them cringe, this, this sounding brass, this clanging cymbal. It's annoying, and it's irritating, and it's hurtful because it's really a hypocritical thing, isn't it? Because I haven't been loving, but I, now I'm sounding eloquent and all educated and everything. They don't go together. People see through that. So love is greater than tongues. Love is also greater than prophecy. Verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. I want to, at the end, we're going to focus on that phrase, I am nothing. It's an important phrase that we need to grasp. But he's saying here, prophecy, the ability to foretell or foretell or even the ability for teaching, to understand the mysteries of the Bible and unlock all the secrets of Scripture can be an expert in my field of theology. But if I haven't been weeping with people, loving people, caring about people's needs, no one's going to listen to that. They're not going to listen to any prophetic word if there's not love. Love is greater than prophecy. It's also greater than faith. Maybe one of the harder ones to swallow because we, we elevate faith. I mean, we, we understand it's by faith we're saved. We walk by faith. Man, it's an important part of the Christian life. Paul says love is greater. Though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. There's the phrase again. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. Love is greater than faith. Love for others, it makes a better impact in others' lives. Well, that, that's a man of faith or a woman of faith but if they don't love people, how are they able to impact their lives for Christ? They've lost their ability to connect with people, even though uh, they have this great faith. Verse 3, love is greater than generosity. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I can empty my bank account out completely down to zero, close the account, take all the money, give it to someone that, that's in need. But if I don't have love, it says it profits me nothing. There's that word again, nothing. It profits me zero. Love is greater than generosity. I mean, you think about that. When someone gives a gift, but it's, it's just like, here you go, and they walk away. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what's at, being described here, but you think about that. When you receive a gift from someone, you want them to, I mean, there's, there's a connection there, right? There's a relationship there. You say, I want you to have this. This is, 
from me to you, and I just want to bless you. That's, that's, that's meaningful. That's, that's memorable. We remember that. Whereas a person that might have a big bundle of gifts, here you go, here you go, here you just robotically passing out things and giving things to people without sharing in the joy of that person opening the gift or whatever it might be. I know sometimes we give gifts in secret, but we, we don't do it with a coldness. We do it with the warmth of agape. Love is greater than generosity. It's also greater than martyrdom. The next part of the verse, and though I give my body to be burned, I could be burned at the stake for my faith in Christ. I'm not going to denounce Jesus Christ. I could be burned at the stake. I could be taken in a country where they take your head off its shoulders for Christ. And we, we look at the martyrs, and we're going to talk about martyrdom a little bit tonight with Abel, the first martyr. But we think about that, and we, we think, wow, those people are just, they're dying literally for their faith in Christ. We honor them. God honors them too, we see. But if I'm not doing that in love, it says it profits me nothing. Nothing is gained. So love is greater than all of these things. Let's explain love now a little bit. It's important to realize that 1 Corinthians 13 is not a platitude to love or a sappy love song. It's very strategically placed in the epistle. It's not just like, oh, I want to write about love and there's flowers and rainbows and unicorns and all these wonderful things. It's not that. It's very, very specific. There's very, it's very strategic on Paul's part, and of course, being inspired by the Spirit, to place it in the letter where he did and why he did that. We have to remember, Paul is still dealing with the problems of sin. He's still writing the first letter. We're in chapter 5 and other ones that pastor went through a list of them. If you remember in that message a couple weeks ago, he's dealing with problems of sin within the Corinthian church. Incest, division, abuse of tongues, envy of others' gifts, selfishness, lawsuits, Christians suing one another, the abuse of the Lord's table, coming together and getting, making it a feast, a drunken party, while the poor people have nothing. There's many issues in Corinth Paul was dealing with. He's still dealing with them. And this is part of the strategy to deal with those sins is to point them toward love. This 1 Corinthians 13 does not operate in, a, in this little bubble away from the rest of the letter. It is integrated into the rest of the epistle on purpose to deal with the issues. And he dealt with them, and now he's giving them this treatise on love. Because of the Corinthians' choices in making these behaviors, whose name was being disgraced? God's name, Christ's name, the Lord's name, Right? I want to focus now on this word nothing in the passage. We see it a couple different times. I won't read all the words again. But he talks about faith. I can have faith to remove mountains, but have not love. I am what? Nothing. I am nothing. I am nothing. I bestow all my goods. Feed the poor. Give my body as a martyr. 
but I have not love, it profits me what? Nothing. Nothing. Just want to spend some time on that. The word nothing there, there's actually two different <clears throat> words. They're really closely related, and they mean basically the same thing. When he says, I am nothing, in the first part, it literally means not even one. None, nobody, nothing, zero, zilch, nada, however you want to say it, it doesn't exist. There is zero profit. There is zero help in what I'm doing. Even if I do all these great things, don't have love, I can say nothing about any of those things I've done. I will receive no rewards for any of those things I have done. They don't matter at all. I think that's a powerful statement. You mean to tell me, Paul, that if I emptied my bank account and went down and gave it to a Pacific Garden Mission or some other homeless shelter, and I became poor and they had that, which really wouldn't be that great, but it would be something. You're telling me if I literally preach Christ on the corners of a country where that's illegal and they took my head off, but I didn't have love? You're telling me that's nothing? Yes. It doesn't even matter in eternity. Without love, all of those great things have all the life sucked right out of them. And they're just these dry, stale religious activities that in God's eyes are nothing. That really spoke to me as I was reading through this. We can have the greatest pedigree in the world. We can be the top leader in our church. Uh, We can have the greatest prestige, but we don't have love to go. And there's nothing wrong with, with prestige in these things if we handle it right and humbleness. But if we don't have love to go along with them, they are literally worthless in God's eyes. They're nothing to him. And I think it's difficult to hear that. And I personally don't really like to hear that very much. Mike. Okay. So Mike is asking those things. Right. Yeah. So Mike's question was the things that we talked about, like, giving my body to be burned and giving money to the poor and all those tongues and all that. Though he's saying those are volition. Are, he's asking the question, are those the volition of man because they don't have love in them? Is that, am I wording it right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Those works that we listed that says if you don't have love, it means nothing. If they don't have love, they are simply man going through the motions of Christianity. And, and without love, they become hollow, they become stale, they become worthless to God. They just blow away in the winds of eternity. Yes, Sure. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So Bar- Barbara's point is that the lie of pragmatism is very prevalent in our world that says it doesn't really matter how you get there. The, the ends justify the means. This speaks against that. It says it does matter how you get there. It does matter how you give to the poor. It does matter how your faith, is, how you live out your faith. It has to be in love. There's a process that God wants us to live out. So again, it's difficult to hear these things. We want to be valued for how spiritual we are, right? We want to have that. We want to have prestige, the positions. But without love, none of that matters. This is the same word. And as I begin to study this, okay, the first thing you do, kind of look through for that word in other passages of Scripture. It's the same word that Pilate used to describe Jesus' innocence in Luke 23, 14. So the high priest bring Jesus before Pilate. They're looking for a death sentence, right? And so Pilate begins to examine Christ. He begins to ask him questions, most of which Christ ignored. He had nothing to say. So Pilate comes back out to these Pharisees and the Jews and the leaders and the people and says, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. What's Pilate saying to the the Jewish leaders? You guys don't have a case. I have examined him as a judge, and he's the judge, jury, and he tells the executioners what to do. He's fully in charge. And he says, you brought this accusation that he misleads people and he's starting a, a riot against Rome and all these things. I have found no fault. And the Gospels are very clear to point that out. Jesus Christ was sinless in in everyone's eyes. They could not pin anything on him. And that's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, I am nothing and it profits me nothing. So it, it helps me understand the weightiness of the word. If I believe that Jesus Christ is fully sinless because he's God, the Son of God, which he is, Correct? Amen? Amen. All right. So he's totally sinless. That means, couldn't Jesus have like done like one little sin? No. None. Not even as a child? Right. He was completely sinless. He was the spotless lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. If that's the weightiness of this word, Paul says, that's how much weight I want to place on you to understand that if you're doing all these Christian activities, these religious activities, but you're not doing it in agape, it's the same weight of nothing to to God. It's an all-encompassing word. Jesus had zero fault, zero sin, and zero guilt. Zero. Immeasurable because it didn't exist It leaves no room for anything to slip past. Just like there's no room for any sin to be found in Christ, there's no room for anything eternally good to be found in us when we go through religious activities without agape. It's the same weight. It's a a heavy weight. It's an all-encompassing word. There's no possible way to receive blessing for religious activities if they are not done in love. The other word is almost identical. 
a few letters different. I'm not really a Greek person, a Greek scholar, anything close. But I just find it interesting. It says it profits me nothing. It's the same basic, basically almost identical word. Not even one. There, there's nothing to even count. There's, there's nothing there. It's, there's, it's nothing. It's zero. Almost identical. Another place it's used. John 21.3, so Jesus has been crucified, buried. He's actually been resurrected by this point. Simon Peter, I think, probably still feeling the weight of his denial. Says, I'm going fishing, guys. <laughs> I, ne- I need to go clear my head. I'm going out on the lake. Of course, they go out in the evening and fish all night, which is what they did. And so the other disciples like, well, we're going with you also. Remember, Peter was the leader. They're going out with him. So they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night, they caught what? Nothing. Zero. There was no fish in the boat. They caught nothing. And some of you can relate to that. Been skunked when you're fishing, right? Not even like a tiny little bluegill or a minnow or something. No. Nothing. Nothing was in the nets. They were empty every single time. They labored all night. And this is, I think, a a little bit of a, a word picture here. They labored all night caught nothing. We sometimes put agape aside, but we we still labor. Well, I'm doing Christian things. I'm laboring through. I'm serving the Lord. I'm doing these things, but we've forgotten about agape. It's no different. We can labor all night and all day and all night and all day for the things of Christ and for things at church and other, other religious activities, but just like the disciples came up with nothing, eternally speaking, we will come up with nothing. It will count for nothing in eternity. I believe this is part of what Paul is describing back in 1 Corinthians 3. So we were in 13, chapter 13, the love chapter. He says, if you do all these things without agape, it's nothing. Before that, he had set the stage, I think, for this, possibly. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, describes what will happen after we are either raptured or die and go up to heaven. And there's scholars debate when this happens. This is part of the description of the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the Bema seat, which was, the Bema seat was used in the games. That's where the athletes would go to receive their crowns. Well, Christ will sit on that seat and we will stand before him. And Paul says, your works on this earth are going to be tested by fire. You Christians now, this is only for believers, by the way. This is not the great white throne judgment. That's for unbelievers. This is a judgment seat of Christ for those of us that are Christians. And we're going to stand before him. And this is what Paul says. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, pause. What's the foundation? It's Christ. It's our justification. So, again, this is a progressive sanctification verse. The foundation has already been laid. That's Christ, right? You put your faith in Christ, that's the foundation of your faith that guarantees the gift of eternal life. But it does not guarantee eternal rewards. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's one category, wood, hay, straw, or stubble, 
That's another category. So we're either building um, through our progressive sanctification and building it up with gold, silver, and precious stones, or we're using wood hand straw. Each one's work will become clear for the day, the day that we stand before Christ. We'll declare it because it will be revealed by fire. This is not talking about hell or the lake of fire or anything like that. This is a purifying fire of the Lord Jesus Christ as all of our works that we've, all, that we've done throughout our whole Christian life are placed, I don't know how it's going to look, in a furnace, some, some in, a, in a container, and it's going to be placed in the purifying fire, the testing crucible of Christ. He's going to test our works by that fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Is it gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hand, stubble? The fire will tell us. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. We've talked about, Pastor Rich has talked about the crowns that we receive, the rewards, the eternal rewards that we receive. Verse 15, but if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. You mean there's some suffering or in a sense of disappointment even after I die and go up to see the Lord? Yeah, there is. We're going to stand before Christ someday and give an account and all of our works will be tested he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He's still going to have eternal life with Christ and with God and all the rest. But he's going to, or she is going to miss out on the eternal rewards. So if we're going through the motions of Christianity, I, one person called it churchianity, and even achieve greatness in the eyes of men, but we don't have love, all the good things we did are going to literally be burned up. They're going to go up in smoke. And what, what, what's going to be left? What's our word? Nothing. Nothing will be left. I don't even think the ashes will be there. I think it will be completely dissolved and completely gone. That's just my opinion. God doesn't give us exact specifications, but I do know that all of my works are going to be set and be passed through this fire. So the final evaluation of my life is whether or not God approves of it. God will have the final say, the final opinion of my life. He gets the final call. So no one else gets to give any input at that time. You know, not even the apostles are standing there. Yeah, Lord, I mean, you burned it up, but can't we still? No. God is the, Jesus is the final judge. He gets the final say on my life. He gets the final judgment. The final evaluation is his. So my question is, and yes, this circles back to agape because sometimes we refuse agape because we're trying to seek the approval of certain people in our lives. Why should I constantly seek the approval of others instead of seeking the approval of God, instead of seeking the approval of Jesus? Because he's the only one that gets to make the final evaluation at the end when I stand at his judgment seat, right? He, he gets the final evaluation. I'm sorry, but you don't get it. No one else on earth gets it. 
and I don't get to evaluate your life for eternity. Jesus gets to do that. That's his place as the king of kings. He's the final judge. But we often find ourselves seeking approval of others. And when we seek approval of others, and that is our motivation and our drive for our life, we often will cast aside people that don't fit into that little shape. I've got to get approval for this person. I really want the accolades from them. I've got to get them patting me on the back. I want them to approve of me. When we do that, we abandon all other people. We, others stop mattering, and all we're doing is focusing on the approval of another person instead of the re- approval of Christ. And I know this is something that gets taught to our teens a lot. It gets taught to our kids. But we adults need this just as much. Second, second statement under that question. So instead of seeking everyone's approval for everything we do, we should be seeking for God's approval by loving everyone. Instead of seeking everyone's approval or certain people's approval for the things we do, we should be seeking for God's approval by loving everyone. Agape knows no limits. It doesn't limit itself to a certain group of people in our life. There is no limit to it. It is boundless. I want my ministry, and I don't mean that in a vocational way, but as a Christian, we all have a ministry. I want that ministry to count for something. I don't want my works getting burned up. Do you? I said this last week or at some point. Sometimes there's a false piety in Christianity that says, well, you know, I shouldn't really, shouldn't really do good works to get rewards because I should just do it because it's the right thing to do. It was good enough for the people in Scripture. Paul says in the verse we looked at, it's good enough for Paul. It should be good enough for us. Why not try to get as many rewards as we can? We should be hungering after that. That should be our, one of our main goals. Is how many rewards can I get in heaven by obeying Christ and by living out my Christian life the way he has for me to live, following Scripture, living in obedience. I want as many as I can get. And I know we don't want to get, I know greed, but greed is about physical things. We kind of want to be, and I'll use this word loosely, greedy for rewards that are eternal. Maybe there's a better word than greedy, but that's the one that comes to mind. Yeah. Yes. Right. Brad is saying it's not a hard thing, it's a heart thing. So as we're growing in progressive sanctification, that's why I think they call this last section the payoff, because we've put in the hard work, we've laid the foundation, we've, we're practicing these things daily in our lives. The, brotherly, the godliness and brotherly love and the agape love are the results. And it's, yes, it is a natural thing. We don't have to grit our teeth and try to agape someone. It's going to flow out of us because it is, it is the spirit in us, and we have done this work of studying and being self-controlled and all the rest. 
and God just lets it overflow out of our lives into the people around us. Yes. Yes. Right. Out of the abundance of heart, the mouth speaks. One more verse, and then we're going we're gonna to have to quit because we're right on the time here. Talking about agape here, and we can't talk about it without the, the highest, the two greatest commandments. Jesus said, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall agape the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, is to agape God. And the second is like it, you shall agape your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Agape love is the highest calling of the Christian life. Agape love is the cornerstone. Now, Christ is a cornerstone of our faith, but as far as how we live, agape love is the cornerstone of how we live our Christian life. If we could make love our highest priority and that goal and saying, I just want to agape everyone that God has in my life. It would transform our lives. Are you going to be nothing or something for the Lord? That's the question. Father, thank you for your word, and I thank you so much for this study, Lord, that we've been able to go the last five weeks. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take to heart these instructions from 2 Peter chapter 1. Help us to continue to evaluate ourselves in the light of your word and look for ways where we're lacking, look for ways that we can uh, build up and add each of the virtues one upon another. Be with us especially as we consider our own hearts and this agape love and how it needs to just flow out of us. Help us to not get in the way of that, Lord. Help us to not put the approval of others in front of the approval of yourself. Help us to be hungry for the rewards, the eternal rewards, that, that they would be gold, silver, and precious stones. They could withstand the purifying fire of your testing, Lord. May we be tested and found as these precious metals that we're longing to have in eternity. Lord, please be with us now as we head home. Give us safety. Help us to continue to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.